Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss accountable care organizations, or ACOs, what they are and what promise uh, do they pose in improving healthcare quality and outcomes and reducing healthcare costs. With me to discuss ACOs is Dr. Kavita Patel. Welcome, Kavita. Thank you, David. Before I introduce Dr. Patel, allow me to provide some context. ACOs have become the most discussed ACA or Affordable Care Act provision intended to reduce Medicare cost growth. They were created by the Affordable Care Act's Section 3022, titled the Medicare Shared Savings Program. It's just seven short pages in the ACA. Generally, an ACO is a network of providers that are responsible for health care needs for a minimum of 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries for at least three years. CMS has now approved approximately 250 ACOs, half are physician-led, and another 20% include community health center and critical access hospital-led ACOs, covering a total of 4 million Medicare beneficiaries. Expected savings are estimated presently at nearly $1 billion over four years, and that's less than 1% of total Medicare spending. So with that as background, let me introduce Dr. Patel. Dr. Kavita Patel is a fellow in the Economic Studies Program and Managing Director for Clinical Transformation and Delivery at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Patel is also a practicing primary care internist at Johns Hopkins. Previously, she served in the Obama administration or in the White House as Director of Policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement. She also served as Deputy Staff Director on Health for the late Senator Edward Kennedy. She was also a researcher at the Rand Corporation and as a practicing physician in both California and Oregon. She earned her medical degree from the University of Texas and her master's in public health from UCLA. So with that as background, thank you again, Kavita. Let's start. I have a broad, more conceptual question to begin with. So an accountable care organization, most people agree, was the creation of Elliot Fisher Mm -hmm. uh, not so long ago, 2006, and was discussed at MedPAC meetings, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. Many of those meetings I attended. And so my first question is, no one then actually knew or could define specifically what an ACO was. In fact, if you go to the MedPAC hearing transcripts, you actually can read that. Uh, despite that, it appeared as a provision, again, in the Affordable Care Act. So on background, uh, what's your understanding of the impetus and the creation uh, for affordable care organizations? So that's a great question, partly because I can tap into my years when I know you and I met each other when I worked for Senator Kennedy. That was actually when I first met Elliot. I had known him by reputation, of course, but had never met him. And in late 2006, he actually came, and I I can't remember which senator helped to sponsor a very small briefing, gathering of staff, but he literally sat in, we sat in a room, about 20 people in the room. I was a little confused as to why we were there. I know we, we had not even had the label ACO attached to it. And Elliot went through a very thoughtful presentation around something we're all aware of, which is the geographic variation in spending in healthcare at the Dartmouth Atlas. He went through the Dartmouth Atlas and went through all the different spending, in both the excess as well as 
places um, like the, in Minnesota where they've spent less than average. And he said, what if we could do something that helped bring the country closer to their regional averages? And what if we thought about this as accountable care? And I remember him vividly, David, writing on a flip chart inside this small room inside the Senate. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm looking at my BlackBerry, I'm like, I, what is going on? I don't know if this is something that we should be doing in legislation or what the next best implementation might be. But I, I knew that... Uh, I knew that there was something to what Elliot was talking about, and that was in 2006. And again, it was really around, couldn't we design care differently in Medicare to get it some spending target that was less than you know the averages that we had had, or at least near the averages. And it took about two years to then see an evolution from concept and some hypothetical models to then some real-world examples and the comfort that I think it took Senate staff and White House staff to say, we'll put that into language, which was a real, I think, shift in payment policy. Everything up until then has been pilots, demonstrations, and initiatives. This reflects, and I think it's interesting for listeners who care about how policy gets shaped, this is a change in actual Medicare payment policy. Not a pilot, not a demonstration, not an initiative. Okay, thank you. And just so... I'll note, uh, Elliot Fisher is with the Dartmouth Atlas. Yes, he's with it. Yeah, he's and he's uh, the Dartmouth Institute. And he, since that time, he and Mark McClellan then kind of paired together to then really help blow out the idea of an ACO, which became more formally named. But we all still joked, even up until the passage of the Affordable Care Act, we would joke about how it seemed like a unicorn, something you knew maybe what it looked like, but it was mythical in creation. Nobody's really you know, sure, right? Nobody was really sure. And yeah. we'll get to, my last question is on the Brookings-Dartmouth Learning oh, Network, yeah. okay. but we'll I'll get to that. that. Yeah. So um, CMS approved uh, 106 ACOs as recently as last month, mm-hmm. so that gives us the 250-odd mm-hmm. uh, in some, and is seeking applications now or soliciting applications now. They'll announce more this summer. But what's your sense to the, relative to the growth rate uh, in, in this type of uh, care delivery? And then also, too, what are the barriers? Yeah, so the growth has been pretty phenomenal because I know that, uh, you know, in that first year right after the Affordable Care Act was passed and then we had the regulation come to us from CMS with guidance about what an ACO had to look like, you know, we had about every three to four months, there was a deadline so that more ACOs could get in in terms of applications. Now we're looking at a yearly application cycle. So I suspect that this first three years of experience, 2010 to 2013, is going to only help to make more institutions comfortable with applying to be a Medicare shared savings program. So I think the growth is very positive. However, as you pointed out, David, it's only about a percent, you know, the, the differential in spending and the impact on spending and the number of beneficiaries, you know, 4 million, that's, that's a good number, but it's certainly not a majority of the Medicare mm-hmm. beneficiaries. I think it's going to take, because of this ability to have an organization take on financial risk, which we can talk about, uh, I think it's going to take several years for the kinds of places that you and I go to for our own care potentially to say, sure, we'll be an ACO. I mean, there's a lot that has to happen to get an organization ready. Um, and then you asked me what some of the barriers might be. Number one is some of the financial infrastructure startup money. I mean, one of the biggest, you you astutely pointed out that a majority of these are physician-owned or physician-backed. 
you've got to, if you talk to some of these ACOs, they had to either take out a loan, they had to get an equity partner to give them some of the money, and they were spending, CMS has even estimated that it can, you can, it can cost up to $150 million, depending on how large you are, to get all the infrastructure in place to be a big ACO with quotes around it. But I've talked to an ACO just this morning that said that they had to spend about $10 million, and they actually got a bank loan, and the banks were confused as to why they needed a loan for something called an ACO, and they had never heard of this. So the barriers are financial and then cultural. If you're going to get doctors to think differently about taking care of patients from a perspective of a population and not one-on-one, there has to be some transformation of the way you actually deliver care, and that's not easy to do. So... The barriers are substantial, but I think the opportunity, especially for those who are on the edge and ready, are significant. And I only hear about more and more, uh, the joke we had was that ACO stood for another consulting opportunity because there were so many people who were willing to help organizations fill out applications, think about readiness, and I see more and more of that every day. Okay, thank you. I excluded in my uh, brief overview what an ACO is in my intro uh, excluded the issue of payment. Yeah. Shared savings is in the title. Right. So could you explain or describe briefly how Medicare reimburses ACOs? Yeah, so d- the the most basic way to think about it is Medicare looks backwards on your... You, you, you tell Medicare, I'm ready to be an ACO. Here are the the uh, doctor, the tax ID, and the doctors who would be in our ACO. And here are 5,000 at least patients. Exactly. And what Medicare tries to do to the best of their ability is to look backwards and say, on average, here's how much these patients cost you. And looking forward, you can try to project and set with Medicare what we call a benchmark for the spending that you would say over the next year at least that you would need to hit or come below. So let's just use really easy round numbers. Let's say it's taken me $10,000 to take care of all of my patients that I want in the ACO, the Dr. Patel ACO for the past three years on average each year. That means in the future for inflation, let's say it costs me about $10,500 and we all agree on that. My goal is to actually spend less than $10,500 to take care of all my ACO patients. Any amount of money I come in under ten five, I split with Medicare. And depending on what kind of ACO you are, you might split that 60-40. But the point is, is that it used to be that if you save money for a payer like Medicare, you don't see any of it. It's just gone into thin air, and you're not, not in your pocket. Now we're actually giving physicians and potentially other providers like nurse practitioners are also part of this. Um, we're giving providers a way to get a share of that savings, hence the name Shared Savings. The big challenge, though, David, is can you come in under 10-5? And if you don't, let's say you just had that patient just had bad luck, got a diagnosis that put them over 10500 in spending, then it depends on whether you're an ACO that said that you're willing to take on all the risk or you're just only willing to take what we call kind of the upside risk, which is the majority of ACOs right now. The majority of ACOs... I mean, there's no penalty. There's no penalty if you spend more than your 10500 like I said in my example. But there's so. no then... 
savings. There's no shared savings. So again, the eye on the prize is can we come in under what our estimated benchmark of 10,500 is? And that's been the big kind of, if you look at some of the leading ACOs, big institutions all the way to smaller independent physician-owned practices, they're all trying to work with Medicare to say, how much have we spent? How can we come in under that? And what do we need to do in our practices to get less money out of, you know, to spend less money for our patients. So there's the track one where they're not at risk right. if they overspend. The yeah, the upside. Always. Then there's the track two, which... Right, downside risk, meaning... So the name of the game is, at the end of the day, can you actually t- pay the penalty? So if you spend more than you said you would, then you actually give Medicare back some of that money so that you can... It, it hurts you financially. And and systems like some of the most advanced systems who are really close to probably what I would think of as capitation-type financing are willing to take that risk on. As a, But as a payback for that, they get a bigger share from Medicare. So the more if they risk, hit their if savings. They hit their savings. So it's all part of... Again, if you know how, if you're confident about what your system can do, and you can take on that risk, you can actually make more money out of this. And that's the point. And the larger macro point is we're trying to move away from fee-for-service right. to fee-for-value or quality Correct. Of right? And right now you're still, all these ACOs, so that just any of your listeners who are curious, they're still billing. If you physically, if you and I physically went to an ACO in the area, Fairfax County, we would find that they're still billing fee-for-service because Medicare, as you know, the claims are still processed in a fee-for-service manner. It's just those monies are aggregated and then you get kind of a benchmark spending set that your practice can look at. Okay, let me just ask you one uh, specific or in the weeds question on the details of an ACO. And this was the one that probably received the most. Well, there were the initial 65 quality measures, measures, they reduced that to 33, so people breathed the sigh of relief for that. But the the one that uh, persisted was that um, were the beneficiaries assigned prospectively or retrospectively? A lot of pushback initially. The rule was on retrospective selection, although they finally went with prospective selection. But the issue that persists is that a Medicare beneficiary, although in a way they're assigned to an ACO, they can go anywhere, seek care anywhere. And this is the concern by providers because they're saying, well, how can we be held accountable? Right. If we know these patients can go elsewhere. That's right. So how yeah. would you, how do you address that? So it's, it's it, certainly, David, I think this is one of the hardest issues because there are flaws with doing a retrospective um, attribution, and this is, you're 100% right. In fact, in, in doing our work, I kind of thought, could we do like a retrospective look back with a prospective selection? And that's a little bit of what CMS is trying to do. They're trying to see if prospectively these patients, as they're enrolling, have been part of your practice so that we have a sense of how likely are they are to stay. Um, actually, working with Dartmouth, we discovered that on average about 30% of Medicare beneficiaries turn over their primary care provider each year, which is a startling That's number. Substantial. It's a substantial number, which is why I think the prospective was the better way to go. But you are 100% correct that part of being in Medicare is that you can't tell people where to go for their care. So if you're, so that this ups the game, so to speak, and I think it's also, you asked me earlier about barriers. I think it's one of the barriers. If you're not confident that the patients that are attributed to your ACO prospectively will stay in your care, then you're still held responsible for their spending, and that's not 
doesn't seem fair to either party. So mm-hmm. I think that uh, so far what we've seen, though, from the ACOs that have been with uh, been with the Medicare program the earliest is they do see some of this churn, but they're not seeing it in excess of what they expected. And so I, I do I suspect that's why you've got a lot of watchful waiting type ACOs that are like, let's see how these other systems mm-hmm. handle it. And then if they figure something out, we might jump in because we'll be able to keep our patients. Okay, okay, thank you. Medicare is termed the market maker. Um, So we do have non-Medicare reimbursed providers who are de facto ACOs. These more typically are large multi-specialty physician groups or even large insurers. Mm -hmm. So... When people talk about how many ACOs there are, there are Medicare fee-for-service ACOs, and then there are these others. others yeah. So let's talk about what's going on yeah. in, the, in the sort of the non-Medicare uh, reimbursed ACO world. So there are, at one point, I think uh, former Secretary of HHS and Governor Mike Levitt, who now has a, I think he actually had a white paper that identified. I mean, this is last year. I think he said there were over 300 or uh, there were a Close to 350, 350 number, number of kind of other ACOs. And, and this is before Medicare's recent announcement. So there are obviously, who knows what our sources are, because I feel every day I see some additional payer getting into an accountable care arrangement. I will tell you that when we looked at some of the contracts that some of the private payers have, it's not necessarily as standardized or robust as what Medicare is doing. Um, what they're usually doing is about a year-long contract with a private entity, the private payer with a practice or a hospital, and it's no risk. You, almost always it's upside risk only, no downside risk, and it's pretty basic. So not as many of the, not as many quality measures, not as much of a rich kind of attribution model, but basically saying, all right, if you come in under the average spend for X amount of patients, will give you a certain percentage of that back, but then they're just trying it out in a pilot form, and that's one form. And then I have seen some of really aggressive payers that have entered into kind of full, I think, uh, full kind of accountable care models. I think Aetna has a very robust uh, part of their business line that they're even calling Aetna Accountable Care Solutions, where they're basically doing kind of hands-on contact with a provider system to say, here's how we're restructuring the care, and we're moving you closer to more of a global budget. So not all of these are total shared savings financial models, but they all have one thing in common. We want you to take more accountability for a population of your patients, and we want you to spend less for that population. How we divide the money, or who gets the money, and who doesn't get the money, those are all the nuances. But that's the one unifying, universal theme in all of them. Okay. Okay. Let me ask sort of probably the the bottom line question, which is now, of course, realizing we're early into this still, just a few years. Um, But from your sense, how and why will ACO succeed? So I... I will uh, self-admit, here I, here I am sounding like I'm the poster child for ACOs, I will tell you that I've been incredibly cynical that an ACO in and of itself will change care much. I think you pointed out that, you know, about a billion dollars in savings over four years, I mean, really, when we've got, you know, $100,000 cancer drugs that we're d- struggling to find out, you know, what, what to pay for. So I think, personally... What I see the ACO is offering the most promise for is giving people a foundation that they can build on to do some of the other things that all together will truly bend the cost curve. And so 
what I see happening every day in the marketplace that uh, I know you and I have talked about is that we see more and more consolidation of providers. Hospitals are buying doctors. Doctors are willing to be bought. Doctors are merging. I see cardiologists working with surgeons, working with primary care, working with pediatricians. Everybody is kind of consolidating, integrating. You've got medical students who have no problem being salaried for their entire lives. So I think that the ACO is acting in a way as like the sticky glue to get a lot of these other market forces to bear. And will that in the end be good enough, smart enough, fast enough? I don't know, but I know it'll be better than the status quo. I think it'll also make every doctor who's been resistant about the concepts of integration or salaries, I think it's going to make those doctors look in the mirror and wonder, how can I keep my practice alive? How can I sustain these costs if everything around me is changing? And hopefully that measures into something you and I care about, which is better quality, but we will have to see. But I think the integration, to me, for, for me, the ACO has acted as a little bit of a candle and a flame for those activities. And it's happening, David. It's happening at a dizzying pace. It's amazing. So, independent of what the ACO itself does, it's a catalyst. It is. For market reform or care delivery reform. Yeah. But I was my next question you anticipated, and that's the consolidation question. Yeah. A lot of discussion that the downside of this possibly would be, we see consolidation anyway in the market, right. healthcare delivery market, but this may be accelerating it to right. the point where it's counterproductive. Right, sure. So could you comment on yeah. what you're seeing in that regard? So, you know, I'll take our local area just as an example because it makes the most sense. I mean, we're seeing a lot of consolidation of providers around Johns Hopkins, GW, Georgetown slash MedStar. I mean, and it's... Inova. Inova, Fairfax, exactly. Mm-hmm. And they're in a relationship with Aetna for some of their accountable care solutions. And I and, and they're also an ACO, that, uh, a Medicare ACO, rather. And I can tell you that right now what's happened is that Everybody's now drawing kind of circle, uh, drawing their borders pretty distinctly. And the referral lines, admissions, everything's getting handled within these kind of virtual integrated systems because of the consolidation effect. And I I don't know if that's necessarily the best thing for patients because I can tell you that when patients come to me with a certain problem, I try to think about who the best provider is. And now on top of that, we have a layer of complexity with, is that provider in our network? Are they part of our preferred specialty referral network? Is this a patient that we should be sending to one of our hospitals? Or is it better for them to be geographically more convenient to their home? And so I'm not, what I don't know, and and then I've looked at markets like California's, New York, Chicago, very competitive, Boston, very competitive markets. And it's hard to know if what we're getting for all of this integration and consolidation is truly better quality. And that's, to me, where I think the rubber is going to hit the road. And we, we haven't seen the out. We're doing it so fast, and we're flying the plane as we're building it, as they like to say. But we're not sure if the plane's getting us to where we need to go. And I'm still waiting to see, you know, what the pilot says. So, <laughs> Well, beyond the quality, of course, is as markets consolidate, they have more pricing power. Well, and right. that, of course, and is the big worry. And that's the big worry, right. And private payers are concerned about the kind of pricing power leverage that I had seen when I worked for Kennedy in Boston. You know, it was very clear that if partners was not part of your, if MGH was not part of your network, 
uh, then you would you would be sorry. And so it was very clear that the payers had to negotiate with whatever they could. And the provider could drive the price. And the provider can drive the price. So there is definitely kind of a, a very risky mentality than, that comes with this on both sides. And I'm always struggling to remind myself at the end of the day, well, the patients end up paying less than they would have because we're saving money somehow. And are they getting better care? And I don't know if we've got the answers to that. Jerry's yet. still out. Yeah. I think we have time for one last question. I did mention um, there is, of course, the Brookings Dartmouth Learning Network, and I'll be happy to post the uh, website address, but it's aclearningnetwork.org. Right. But if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the yeah. learning network. So our learning network is comprised of about a third provider systems, about a third um, lawyers, consultants, people who give advice to other people in provider settings, and then about a third, about a third kind of healthcare people who might fall into other categories, device companies, pharmaceutical companies, have interest in healthcare payers, people who have an interest in healthcare for other reasons but are not themselves going to be an ACO. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very heterogeneous and interesting crew, and I think that uh, what we try to do in the Learning Network, we have webinars, we can facilitate interaction. We organize roughly around four topic areas. I run our payment reform topic area, so things that deal with financing and payment, that's my bailiwick. Um, Our friends at Dartmouth run clinical transformation and management of high-risk and vulnerable population work groups, so those are two different work groups. And then uh, Barbara Gage, another senior leader here, runs a quality of care work group. So between that, we cover the four topic areas that tend to be the most interesting, um, but we end up using our webinar formats as well as two in-person meetings a year to try, sorry, three in-person meetings a year to try to facilitate networking as well as some of the peer-to-peer learning that we think is pretty important. And one of the topics that we're working on next week uh, with one of our learning network partners from an ACO from Hackensack, New Jersey, is the topic of how to deal with all the various data sources that ACOs are getting from Medicare, the different sources of data, all Medicare data, and how ACOs are taking that data and turning it into something that they can do something with. Because part of this agreement with Medicare was that in order to change the way you practice, you can't wait for a two-year-old Medicare right, data. Get timely data. You have to get timely data, quarterly timely data, so that you can take action now based on things that happened now. And so, the, which is not something Medicare, God bless them, has ever been known for. So we're going to get some real feedback from an ACO and, and get some understanding of here's what Medicare gives us, and then here's what we have to do with it to change the way we deliver care. And it's not very easy as we're learning. And I think that's part of the learning curve with why it might be a barrier to be an ACO right now. You need to have timely data, and CMS is working as best as they can, but they hadn't had to do this before, and it's new to them. So our learning network is a learning environment, peer-to-peer, it's vertical, it's horizontal. And then I think the best kind of networking in person for a small group, you know, small group setting that you can get. So we have about a over 150 different kinds of members that are comprised of that rough makeup okay. I told you about. Okay. And my last question is, how soon do you think we'll have data to know how well and to what extent ACOs are, are succeeding? Will we see it by the end of this calendar year, or do you think it'll be several more years? I think So the most interesting part of this is the pioneer ACOs, which are the early ones that started 
Um, their evaluation is being done like right now, presently. Yes. presently. So I don't think we're going to see any of that evaluation data. It's much like the PGP, the Physician Group Dem- practice. Pr- practice Demonstration Program that was kind of the precursor to Basis ACO. Basis for this, yes. Yeah, and we didn't see that until a little bit later, and then we learned a lot of interesting highly things. varying results with the PGP. Exactly, yes. exactly. I have a fear. I have a fear that's the same thing that's going to happen. I heard at best 2014 some okay. of the initial stuff, but. Not any sooner than that. So, so we'll have to talk again next week. We will. To see how Absolutely. That's a date. Absolutely. Okay. With that, uh, we're at our time boundary. So let me say thank you, Kavita. Very thank much you. appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, David. Thank you all. Very welcome. Thank you.